Hello, welcome to the Data Science Salon podcast. I'm your host, Q McCallum, AI consultant, writer, and senior content advisor at Formulated By, which is the company behind this podcast. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about moving beyond the point estimate in machine learning. That usually starts with seeing the world in terms of statistical distributions and running simulations to get a more robust picture of a model's results. This is something I wanted to share with listeners and figured I'd call in an expert, and that would be my old friend James J.D. Long. James is a self-described agricultural economist, quant, stochastic modeler, and cocktail party host who does a lot of work in R, Python, and AWS. Through his work in the reinsurance field, he's developed deep knowledge of simulations and probabilistic thinking, as well as an ability to explain these topics in plain language which is what he does every time someone new joins his team. In this episode, James and I explore the ideas of risk and uncertainty, uh, what is probabilistic thinking and why it's important for data scientists, how to bridge the gap into thinking probabilistically, the career progression of a data analyst, and what it means to develop statistical acumen, and seeing business intelligence, versus artificial intelligence versus simulation in terms of punctuation. No, seriously, you'll, you'll see what I mean. Just listen a few minutes in, you'll, you'll hear it. Um, just a reminder, James only speaks for himself in this episode and he does not represent his employer. By the way, uh, I had to switch a microphone to the last minute the night we recorded and despite my tests, my sound quality was rather fuzzy, so I apologize for that. The plus side is that James, he's our guest, he's the important one here anyway, his sound quality was top-notch, and I think you'll enjoy what he has to say. And with that, let's get started. So a number of us that had our finger in the pie in all these different cities around the world, you know, more than 10 years ago, working on this thing called data science are still around doing things in the space. Uh, and I think what's interesting and part of what, why you and I are going to have a conversation, I hope what we're going to have a conversation about is all the different facets of work and needs there are for quantitative people that doesn't look like real candidly optimization of clicks on a website using deep learning or, you know, machine learning or something. There's a world of quantitative work that isn't that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. That's something you and I have definitely bonded over over the years is this idea that data science, machine learning, AI, whatever we're calling it this year, it is exciting. It is useful. It's not as new as some people would like to think. And you know, one of the exciting things, one of the fun things about running this show is I'm able to bring on people who have worked in other fields that are fairly quantitative in nature that don't have the title data scientist. For example, I think it was uh, one or two episodes ago, Dr. Amar Nat came on. She is an economist, right? Mm -hmm. Does a lot of work that sounds like quote unquote data science, doesn't have the data scientist title. Same thing for you. You mentioned that you are a quantitative risk manager. Maybe you'd like to... Uh, Take a second to explain to the audience yeah. a little bit about what that means, just because I realize that you and I come from that more quantitative financial-ish background. I think a lot of our listeners may not. So 
share a bit more about what that means. Let me tell a quick anecdote because it's been a couple of years since I've told it and and clearly need to share it more wildly, widely. When I was starting graduate school, there was a recruiting fair going on at the University of Kentucky uh, where I, I did both my undergrad and grad work at, at University of Kentucky. There was a recruiting fair for agricultural economics, right? And that was my, my program of study. And in the recruitment fair, I was surprised to see American Express recruiting heavily at state school agricultural economics. And I asked my major professor, what's up with Amex, the credit card company, right? What are they doing here? And he said, oh, well, they really like recruiting agricultural economists because we have applied experience with data analytics using computers. And they said there's no other program that they can recruit from where the students come out with so much hands-on theory and practice of data analysis uh, with real data, warts and all. Said you go over to the economic, you know, and this was this was 30 years ago, right, or 25 years ago. Said you know, go over to the the economics departments, and they have great theory, but they aren't teaching them to analyze data in, in agricultural economics. You know, and now of course we were using SAS and Excel, but we learned to analyze data and deal with missing data and dirty data and outliers and, and all of this practical stuff that we have to deal with in real life. So that's my story about how agricultural economics is the OG data science. Now, I say that usually just to start bar fights in an appropriately nerdy enough bar, uh, because we all know that the physicists have a really good claim to fame on being OG data science people, uh, you know, but I like to I like to mix things up a little bit. So that's kind of kind of my background. And then I did work in graduate school and then and then in my early career as well in modeling agricultural insurance. Uh, agricultural economist, so and a background in in insurance and in insurance product design. So things like reviewing new products that the federal government was considering subsidizing and trying to understand the market distortion caused by the government subsidy, whether the product, uh, the ways the product might be gamed, if it could be gamed, um, uh, how the effect of a portfolio of these products, how do you price them properly? How do you prevent uh, people from taking extra risk because they have uh, the insurance coverage? That's moral hazard. It's a type of type of gaming. Uh, so anyway, thinking about all of these things and then also, you know, looking at real data and saying, did the product or the, or the policyholders behave in the way we, we would expect? And that, you know, that was a whole world of work. Um, and I got experience going deep into those products, not just in the US, but worldwide. I have, I have some great stories about uh, work in Ethiopia, uh, Mongolia, and really interest, interesting stuff thinking about how do we make public policy around insurance so that it takes risk off, especially vulnerable people, uh, and uh, doesn't incentivize risky behavior, right? Um, so I brought that in. Then, then I got um, hired on at KPMG for kind of an interesting fact pattern. They had a client who was a big agricultural uh, multinational. And uh, it was time to do, they wanted, that multinational wanted to hire KPMG to do a um, rules and procedures around their trading floor because uh, they needed more policies and structures, um, guidelines, the standard 
stuff you have to have around your trading floor to make sure people are doing what they're supposed to do and not doing what they're not supposed to do. Well, their team that does that kind of work was majority former former energy traders, uh, lots of them former Enron. So this would have been you know early 2000s, so post Enron. Um, and they kind of looked around and says, we don't, and they said to themselves, we don't have any agriculture people and we're going into this agricultural company. Uh, and so they put out a, you know, request to hire somebody. And I ended up being that guy to be the, I joked about calling myself the plaid shirt in the room, right? Cause the agricultural folks always tend to show up in khakis and plaid shirts. And so I could relate to the plaid shirted people in the room, um, and be one myself. And so I became sort of this, this, a little bit of a translator there. Uh, in that environment. And it was a great deep exposure into, uh, you know, how commodity trading operations work. I had some background in that with my ag econ background, Um, you know, and then in that context did discovered that the stochastic modeling that I'd been doing over in the insurance world was the same stuff they were doing over at uh, in in the finance uh, world and in the, in the commodity world. And I looked at, you know, their value risk calculation is kind of like, I know what that is. That's historic burn or simulated burn uh, that we would do over on an insurance product. Sorry, not, not, um, not historic, but simulated. And I'm like, okay, you guys are just running the simulation forward, picking a point in the distribution and looking at what the value is. I can do that. We, that's, that's one of the mechanisms we would use in, in calculating rate on an insurance program. So I realized the whole bunch of these ideas really, really mesh together. And, um, you know, then I've, I've worked a number of, number of places uh, since then, insurance company, uh, modeling long-term care insurance, um, and then wandered into uh, reinsurance, uh, partially because of my connections uh, I had had through my, through my agricultural work, uh, through the agricultural insurance, insurance modeling, uh, and then ended up at, at, at where I work now, which is uh, Renaissancery, uh, working with uh, Risk Solutions team there doing, you know, complicated modeling and figuring things out. And uh, as I told you in the, in the pregame, when we were pregaming before this, I'm not officially representing my employer here. This is, you know, me and you having a conversation. I'm not an official representative of them, but this is how I ended up kind of in this career path. Um, and towards that end, you originally asked me, how do we think about what is financial quantitative financial risk management, right? The way I think about it is building the mathematical models to help us understand what might happen in the future and what the probability of these different outcomes are. That's the way I generally frame it. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I think going back to something you mentioned before, uh, you know, you've, you've dropped the word risk a lot here. I think for our audience who hasn't, uh, who haven't worked in that space, I think a good layman's definition of risk is an event that hasn't happened yet. It may not happen, but if it does happen, it's going to carry some sort of consequences, right? And so for the listeners, you can imagine then that risk is a very important concept for businesses out there. You know, I've seen this early in my career working with risk management groups and various trading firms. You've seen it in the insurance space. This is all about companies trying to get a bit of a mathematical hold on what might happen. And if it does happen, how badly they will get burned. That's where all of this crazy math comes from. That's where all of your simulations come from. And quite frankly, you know, I think that's going back to what we were talking about during the pregame. 
that's where you get a lot of your quote unquote data science street cred and that you haven't done much in the way of let's say neural networks or any of the fancier tools out there. But if we're talking about this general notion of trying to back a real world phenomenon into a mathematical formula, so you can just get a better idea of the parameters around it, get an idea of what could happen, try to understand it better. That is your world, right? Right, right. And, and, and aggregating those together across, you know, a global corporation uh, or or a global set of set of portfolios. So can I challenge your definition of risk? Is that a Please disrespectful do. thing to do to come on your podcast and let me reach into the uh, Chicago School of Economics and grab out Frank Knight, right? And Frank Knight had this great definition that I like. Um, no matter what Taleb says about him, I think this is a useful mental model. And Frank Knight said, there's kind of two things going on driving variance. There's risk and there's uncertainty. And the way he defined the difference of those two is risk are the, you don't know what the outcome is, but you have um, a reasonable estimation of the shape of the distribution that the observations are being drawn from. So think of that as you have an urn full of marbles, they're half white and half black, and you know that, and you pull one out. You don't know what you're going to get. You're going to get either black or white, but you know the distribution. Now, contrast that to you have an opaque urn, and you have no idea what color the marbles are inside, and you have no idea what the domain of possible outcomes are or what the ratio of anything is, and you reach in and you alligator bites your hand. That's uncertainty, right? It's, it's a very different thing. It's we don't know what it is, and we can't put any bounds around it. It's just a whole bunch of bad stuff. Now, when we apply quantitative measure, measures, we can begin to talk about the risk component. My pet peeve is people having uncertainty and trying to build models with the third decimal point about the alligator being in there and they stick their hand in and it's full of bees, right? It's like you're, it's the wrong tool to understand uncertainty. And so we have to separate that out. And often I try to talk about a certain uh, a certain variant space about, okay, this is lots of uncertainty and a little bit of risk or lots of risk and a little bit of uncertainty. If it's in, and I'm, I like living in worlds where I've got lots of risk and a little bit of uncertainty. Now the Taleb argument is you don't know, and you can't know how big the uncertainty is and you're just kidding yourself. So we're going to set that aside. Cause I, I don't, we, we don't have five hours uh, to delve into that. Um, but that's how I that's how I think about risk. And what I spend a lot of time uh, predominantly thinking about is the is the risk piece, right? What is the shape of the distribution? What are the things that go into that? And what are the range of possible outcomes? That's perfect. And I think that leads us right into where I was hoping to head with today's episode and a big part of why I was really excited when you said you'd be able to join us in the podcast. Um, to take a step back, this will make a little more sense for our listeners why we're going to talk about this topic. Um, so last year, maybe a couple of years ago, I forget when that happened, I started thinking more about the different stages of data, how, how it's used, how we, how we sort of bucket those activities. And I started to think about data in terms of punctuation, right? So for example, business intelligence or BI, I say that periods, right? Because so long as your data is clean and correct, Everything that comes out of BI, it's a fact. So you see it with a period. So, for example, um, our Flatiron store 
had more sales than our Upper West Side store sort of thing. But the store on the Upper West Side um, had greater volume of sales, less money, that sort of thing. We can break it down by date, by location, by whatever. That's BI and it's a period. That's great. The next step up is AI. And I say AI is question marks because no matter how much we like to pretend that our models are perfect, they're not. And so every time a model makes a prediction, we're essentially asking a question, right? Will this model classify the document correctly? Will the person click on this advert or that sort of thing? And that's great. So I have BI, periods, AI is question marks. And then the next step sort of hit me was this notion of probabilistic thinking or simulation is ellipses. Because when it comes to AI, we're effectively looking for a point estimate, right? The model is going to return, oh, the price of this property should be $700,494.12. Okay, that is a number that's come out of the model, but how do we feel about that? How certain are we about the number coming out of that model? And I realized, well, what I would do in that case if I had questions about what my model was giving me is I would run a bunch of simulations to, to your point, to try to get a shape of the distribution around that 700,000, whatever, whatever. Like, is it a very narrow distribution, in which case we can have a lot of faith in that number, or is it a very wide and flat distribution, in which case we can say the number, it is a number, right? and that's about all we can say about it. And from there, I started to wonder, well, why don't, why don't I see more of that sort of probabilistic thinking in the machine learning space? And, you know, there are a number of people out there, I'm sure they're, they're sort of shouting and throwing their, their phone or iPod or whatever in the air as they think. And as they say, well, you know what? I do Bayesian data analysis all the time. I think in terms of distributions and probabilistically and all that. I do that. But I think a lot of people in this field don't. So where I'm going with all of that is part of why I was so happy you were able to join us is because thinking probabilistically, this is what you do for a living. And I figured if there's there's no better person I could ask to come to the show and explain to the listeners what probabilistic thinking is, why it's useful, how you get there, and that sort of thing. So given that, I'll wrap up my TED Talk here. I'll turn the mic back to you. <laughs> you know, Maybe we can start by you shedding a bit more light on this notion of thinking probabilistically. Like, How would you describe it? Uh, you know, an analogy kind of we didn't pregame this one. This one came to me kind of as you were talking. I think a little bit about, you know, I have often said, and this isn't new, but thinking the progression of an analyst and their sophistication is how many moments of a distribution they can ingest as they think about something. Uh, so let me give you an example. Um, you know, we think about, well, what's the expected outcome? That's a single point, right? And and you what that means is like that's a mean. That's an ad, you know, take all the possible outcomes, that's the average one, right? So that's the mean, the first moment of, of the of the distribution. And then you raise this question of well, how dispersed is your estimate around that, right? Well, a symmetrical dispersion around the mean, that's the second moment of the distribution, right? That's the standard deviation. And you know, then we might say, are bad things more likely to happen than good things? Or is it the other way around? Are there more good things that might happen than bad things? So that's like the shape of that distribution. Is one bad tail longer than the good tail? Or is the good tail longer than the bad tail? That's skew. 
right? That's the third moment of the distribution. And then in uh, kurtosis is, is how thick those tails are versus what we'd expect otherwise. Um, but as we think about, as I think about the sophistication of, of, of analyst, right? Learning to think in more distributions and, and learning to think about when does it matter? When do these, when does skew matter? When does symmetry matter? Um, you could think about kind of data science as a whole following a similar pattern. And that was the part that hadn't really clicked until you're describing that. I feel like we've come from a place where there was lots of conversation around mean estimates, right? Or just saying, um, you know, the, the prediction is, uh, you know, the, the outcome will be, uh, will be red. And, and, you know, we do see this in some of the uh, machine learning models, they'll throw a probability, right? So you, we've all seen the images where they're doing image recognition, it puts the box around it, you know, and says this is a choo-choo train with 75% probability and it's trash can. Um, you know, we've all watched that. So that's sort of a measure of the dispersion around that mean estimate of its choo-choo train. And it was saying that that's pretty strong, but we could also, particularly when we start thinking about continuous outcomes, there's this idea of like skew, or do we have more bad things that can happen than good or more good that it can happen than bad? Um, and I think we will begin to introduce more and more of these concepts into kind of mainstream data science because they're super useful because things aren't always symmetrical. And it's interesting over the years watching, and, and that would be analogous to skew, just to be real uh, verbose. Um, but one of the things I see is I watch uh, people online talking about, you know, different machine learning problems and treating upside and downside the same. And that implies symmetry. Now, they don't realize they're doing that. They just have a penalty function that's the same for upside and downside or, um, what you know, or, or they're just implicitly, not explicitly thinking of the two sides of the distribution the same. When in practice, we know that's often not the case. We're way more sensitive to certain types of false positives and certain types of false negatives have very different cost functions associated with them, right? Um, I was reviewing a, a blog post my uh, buddy Josh Patterson wrote over at Patterson Consulting online. He wrote this uh, blog post about uh, using machine learning uh, on predictive maintenance. And there's a really, you know, the cost of maintenance of taking a machine down to repair it um, has a certain cost associated with it. But the cost of that machine failing because of lack of maintenance has a very different cost structure. And so it has this asymmetry between these two sides. So you don't want to use the penalty for that the same. Now, the, the thing that Josh honed in on that I think is missing in a lot of data science conversations is you can actually represent all this with dollars and it's really helpful in the conversation. So fo folks are often saying, how do we make data science more relevant for business? How about stop like just classifying the thing and turn it all the way into a financial model? Take it the next step farther, which is instead of saying, oh, we predicted 90% of failures. Well, that's that kind of doesn't tell me enough to figure out if you've got a model that is, is worth me paying you anything for, much less whatever your price tag is. We've got to take that all the way to how much is it going to cost me in false positives? 
how much is it going to cost me in false negatives? And how much better are you than Fred, who's been walking the machine floor, listening to these machines for 45 years, and he's got a pretty good neural net between his two ears that's pretty decent at predictive maintenance. You got to prove to me you're better than him and prove to me that there's financial payoffs. And I feel like that's a big mistake in a lot, not a mistake, a big, a big void that a lot of machine learning could fill is carrying it all the way to the financial model. You, you hit the nail on the head. You know, I often joke that I started my career in the financial space. And what that meant was that I got a, a masterclass in a lot of things, you know, one of them being connecting the technology to the business, right? And for those who haven't worked in the financial space, especially in any form of trading, you know, you learn very quickly that you're in a space where you can literally quantify your decisions, mm -hmm. right? Uh, for example, for the client, for the traders, they'll develop a strategy. They'll put a model out there and they can say, okay, I have this model and it literally made money yesterday. It made X amount or it lost X amount. And you can, that starts to shape your mindset. So going back to what you're saying, thinking about taking this all the way to the financial side of things, I just wonder if those of us who came from some flavor of financial background, if we don't even have to think about this, it's just sort of drilled into us. For you, for me, for a number of people I know, we don't even question going straight to the financial side of things. We just say, okay, we've built this model. It predicts to X percent. Okay, but in the end, how much is that saving us? Does that mean we're freeing up Y number of people to do things that human brains need to do versus what the machines can do very well, that sort of thing. And two, you know, I'm also starting to wonder what this means as far as helping data scientists to shake out of a rut. Mm -hmm. I can use that term. Uh, the rut being sort of like what you said, this idea that, well, we've built a model, it makes prediction, we're done, as opposed to thinking about the wider business impact, thinking about what that means for understanding the domain in which you're operating, which will help you understand whether the model you've built is worth it. And digging a little deeper, what it means to start to develop your own custom metrics, right? You were talking about left side versus the right side of the tail, which one hurts me more. Um, some people in our audience may see this in terms of does a false negative or a false positive from a model hurt me more? Like right. not all model risk is the same, essentially, right? I, I think in the financial space, it is a necessity and it is implied that we're going to carry everything through a financial model. We're not done till we do that. Um, and I think in a, lots of other lines of business, it isn't always obvious how to do that. And it also isn't always obvious how one gets there or it isn't expected. But I, in, in our world, you know, I, I worked in agricultural insurance. And one of the things I've looked at is, you know, distribution of crop yields. Well, I'm not a farmer. I'm not interested in my distribution of crop yields. I'm only interested in the distribution of crop yields to the extent that it impacts a agricultural insurer. And the way it impacts them is through some financial model, right? So I've got to not just build those things, but carry them all the way through a financial model. And, and when we build up our probabilistic models, you know, it is always we're modeling some underlying process. So maybe at a reinsure, it's hurricanes, right? Uh, like the one we just had in Florida. We look at what's the probability of an outcome like this. We look at the engineering damage based on the type of roofs and the type of construction in an area. But we're not done. Then we run it through a financial model of how much is it going to cost to rebuild that given current conditions, because they may be different than the conditions of when that was built. 
but we're not done. We've got to run it through the terms of their insurance contract. Oh, now we're financializing it. So we run it through the, the insurance contracts and then we run it through the reinsurance contract. So we're not done till we've gone through multiple layers of a financial model, right? Uh, although a better hurricane model is tremendously valuable in that it allows us to get better financial uh, outcomes on the backside for better understanding, not better outcome, like I'm going to make more money, but a better understanding of the outcome, which may allow me to posture myself in such a way to manage my capital better. Part of what you're touching on there is a joke I've often said, which is working finance spoiled me because there is zero distance between the KPI and the money. <laughs> right. It is. The KPI <laughs> is the money. The money is the KPI. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. KPI is the money. The money is the KPI. And, you know, I think it says a lot for, for mindset. And I think you know, if we can dig a little deeper then, so we've talked yeah. about some of the some of the higher level mental benefits for learning to think probabilistically, right? Let's dig in some more. You know, you've mentioned that you spend some of your time teaching the folks in your company about thinking probabilistically. And you mentioned that sometimes, understandably, it's, it's a whole new way of thinking. It requires a very different frame of mind. You've said that sometimes people have uh, some hurdles trying to wire their brain to think probabilistically. So can you share a little bit more about some of the things you've done to help people bridge that gap to, to think beyond the point estimate, if you were? When we bring folks in, the expectation is not that they're insurance reinsurance experts. Uh, you know, the, the number of those in the world is few. And I feel like what I can, I can teach that domain space. What I can't teach is like curiosity and and insatiable uh, desire to figure things out, the you know all of that. So I filter for all that. That's what I'm looking for uh, when I'm hiring. So I know when folks come in, I've got to bootstrap, not just domain knowledge. So not just what is insurance and reinsurance, although I do have to bootstrap that. But we also have to bootstrap thinking in uh, distributions because that's not we don't drop out of the womb with the ability to think that way. So one of the things we often do is, is we make an analogy. We start with a, with a bakery, like literally I'll have, you know, two or three early career analysts and like, all right, today we're going to like wrap our head around. What is this whole exercise we're doing in the risk department? Like what, it, what is it and why are we doing it? And we do the bakery example and we just say, okay, well, you know, what, what, how do we run a bakery? If you were going to start a bakery and we talk about, you know, you have fixed cost, your rent, and then you have your marginal cost. That's your flour and your sugar and things. And those are your cost of goods sold. So every time you sell a pastry, it's going to have some amount of uh, physical things you had to buy plus labor in it. And then you sell those. Um, labor, you know, so every once in a while we get sidetracked with labor is quasi marginal, but it's kind of fixed. So it's a little stair step. And I got to redirect the conversation because we aren't running, actually running a bakery. I'm using this all as a thought exercise to set up the next piece, which is in our shop, what are those pieces? You know, and I look at them and go, well, your salary is kind of fixed cost, right? This building where it ends a fixed cost, you know, what's our cost of goods sold? And they look at me and they're like, I don't know. And I go, I don't know either. <laughs> and that's the point. We don't know in an insurance or reinsurance company what our cost of goods sold are. We know what contracts we have written. We don't know the outcome. You know, and, and I love the look in their face when I go, I don't know either. When they ask me what the what the cost of goods or when I ask them what the cost of goods sold are. Um, 
because it feels at first like we're winging it and we're not even a little bit, but we don't know exactly what the right answer is. So we go, okay, well, what might, how might we estimate this? And I'll get input from them and, you know, usually stuff about past history and that sort of thing. And we average it and they're like, great. All right. That's an estimate. And uh, that's a single point estimate. And then we say, okay, could it be worse than that? And they'll go, well, yeah. And I'll go, okay, could it be better than that? And they'll say, yeah. And we'll talk about what a, maybe a high, medium, low kind of, you know, outcome would be. What's a kind of bad outcome? What's a, what's the expected? And then what's a, what's a good outcome? And now we're in probabilistic space. They may not realize that yet, but we're talking about three different scenarios, a, a good scenario, medium scenario, bad scenario. And we're like, okay, well, what if we could fill that in with more color? Say, what about a, you know, super unlikely? And now we're going maybe to five levels, you know, bad, really bad, average, good, really good. Um, and then we say, okay, well, this is basically what we're doing only we're modeling thousands of points, right? And then, so that's how we bootstrap thinking in probabilities uh, with, with analysts who are coming in usually thinking about one number. Well, what's the answer? Um, and and that's, that's the beginning of the journey, obviously, not the end. But then they have a mental model for, oh, we're going to estimate a whole bunch of stuff based on some input distributions or some input scientific model, the earthquake or the hurricane earthquake models are highly scientific driven. Other lines of business are more historical experience driven. And we have a very methodical process for bringing those together into a unified model. And that's how we think of possible outcomes for the company. So that, that's how I bootstrap it. And then they at least know what the exercise we're doing. It's like, oh, we're estimating cost of goods sold. And so building on that, since you work in the reinsurance space, and I guess we'll to sort of take a step back for the listeners. So everyone here, at least I'm hoping everyone here is familiar with the notion of an insurance policy. They hopefully have insurance of some sort. And you know the way that works is that your insurer says, okay, I'm going to write a policy for this car. I cover you in the event things go wrong, so on and so forth. And in theory, the insurer has some amount of capital on hand to pay that out as long as as long as only a few cars get stolen that year, not everyone's car gets stolen. But you know, once in a while, even an insurer says, Well, I don't know. I'm still I'm starting to feel a bit iffy about some of these contracts we've signed. Can we as insurers get insurance? And that's where you come along. You come from the reinsurance world. So reinsurance is insurance for insurers. And so it sounds like part of what you're doing when you're bootstrapping this probabilistic thinking using recruits is showing them that, yes, this goes just beyond one business, well, one quote-unquote bakery, right? Mm -hmm. You're probably looking at hundreds, if not thousands of quote-unquote bakeries, aka insurance policies, and you're just trying to get a picture of, I can't, I guess I can't say distribution in this case, but the whole set of policies, what's going to happen with those, right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, and we're, we're managing a large dispersed portfolio, right? So it's a global portfolio of risk. Um, Right now with Hurricane Ian having just gone through Florida is, is a good example. A number of Florida insurance uh, carriers are regional or super regional. They cover a very small uh, amount of, amount of geogra geography. So as a result, a hurricane like Ian is very, very catastrophic to those companies. They often don't have enough capital on hand to cover a uh, 
moderate hurricane, much less one like Ian. Um, so in that case, having a reinsurance policy with a company like ours or many of the other global reinsurers is a type of contingent capital. That's one of the terms that's often used to describe our industry. We are capital contingent upon some disaster happening. So if the disaster doesn't happen, well, we keep our capital in play and use it for other policies. But if we do have a disaster, then our capital goes to those companies who need it to cover the situation that they're in based on the contract they have purchased from us. Thanks for that explanation. And part of why I asked is because you know, to be able to bridge this for our listeners, it sounds as though we this concept of probabilistic thinking and take it beyond the insurance and the reinsurance world. It sounds like it's widely applicable no matter what field you're in. I'm guessing people working in any of these um, new age marketplace apps, like let's say mm -hmm. some sort of ride share system, I'm sure probabilistic thinking for them can be extremely useful. I'm guessing people as well working in retail, media, ad tech, that sort of thing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds as though you know, getting data scientists to think probabilistically, think beyond the point estimate could be useful in a lot of different fields, right? Absolutely. So where I learned stochastic modeling, one of the examples that was used to uh, teach me, I went down to Texas A&M for a workshop uh, for so this software that was an add-in for um, Excel, I think it was called Scimitar, if I remember correctly. It's very similar to At Risk, uh, which more folks will be will be familiar with. But the example we worked through in that class was a family-owned uh, storage unit uh, complex. So like where like the U store kind of places where you pay to rent a locker, you know, of a certain size. And what we built was a uh, financial model. Now this is what was interesting because I'm going to bring in regression analysis, which we haven't, because this is, this really clicked with me in an interesting way. We built a regression analysis uh, for, um, for this company. Like as this changed, how did that impact the bottom line? And um ran some some actuals from an existing company through and one of the things that you do when you build a regression is you have this error term and that error terms a, is a distribution right and what we did in the exercise was okay uh that's great let's sample from that distribution and look at all the possible outcomes uh, and I was like, well that's pretty neat trick that's kind of cool and then it then the question was all right, Let's put instead of a single value for all these, we would take the instrumental variables and say, instead of them being a single value, let's put a range in there and sample right. across that range. And so we built a stochastic model of this mom and pop um, self-storage center. And that was our toy example for uh, building stochastic simulations, only wasn't a toy. It was actually, a, it was a based on a real case study, but it was a simple enough business that um, that it wasn't too, too hard to fit the whole thing in your head, right? And that's part of a good example is it can't, you know, starting with a global reinsurance company, a multi-line global reinsurance company, it's probably not the best place to learn stochastic simulation, but a, uh, you know, a family-run self-storage facility is kind of simple enough financially uh, to understand and build some really useful toy models to begin think about how do we use simulations to simulate financial outcomes in a business? That's everywhere. It definitely is. And now that you've said that, I think you've just helped me unlock 
why I find all of this so interesting. It's because 20 odd years ago, when I first learned <laughs> about mathematical modeling, you know, one of the first things you learn about, this is, we're talking like linear modeling, that sort of thing. It's the, the old textbook example of, you know, you have a van of X dimensions, you're trying to fit in Y number of TVs versus radios versus whatever, whatever. And I remember at the end of the first example, whatever book it was said, okay, we have an answer. Now let's perform what's called a sensitivity analysis. In mm -hmm. other words, what if we start to vary some of the values we come up with? Okay, let's say we ship in four TVs versus 12 radios, that sort of thing. What happens to the total amount of merchandise we're able to carry in the van and that sort of thing? And I think that's what really started to wake me up to this idea that, oh, there are a lot of cases where there isn't just one answer. There isn't just one right answer. You have to think about the full range of answers. And that's where you start to get a deeper appreciation for the full scope of what you're building out, if you will, right? right? And so I, I guess why I bring that up is because you talked about being able to fit this example of the mom and pop youth store in your head. You realized, yeah, I guess the next step down from that is a very basic sensitivity analysis before you even run a full-on simulation. Where I'm going with all of that now is we've talked about the applications of probabilistic thinking. Right. We've talked about helping people get past some of the hurdles of, of trying to wire their brain to think that way. We've talked about some practical real world examples of where this applies. Let's dig a bit deeper, right? Because one of the things that I find really interesting about your career is that you've, you and a handful of other very quantitative people I know, you've written that fine line between being able to speak the business language and talk about things in terms of the financial side of what you're doing. But you're also really deep into the technology side of things. I remember you were one of the first people I met who saw the power and what was it? Amazon's Elastic MapReduce. You were running like yeah. these huge simulation jobs and you said, hey, if I can connect R to that, I can cut my simulation time from like days to hours sort of thing. Uh, more recently, I think the last time we spoke, you had found something fascinating in Spark and you, you know, you would, oh, you know, using this thing in Spark, I can once again run my simulations a lot faster, run a lot more data through them, that sort of thing. And so I think it's pretty interesting that you managed to stay on top of the technology mm -hmm. because you have that focus of, I have all these simulations I need to run. I need them to run in a much shorter window and that sort of thing. So given all of that, let's talk about some of the tools that you're using to run these simulations. And this could be, you know, the stuff you've run in the past, uh, the tools that you like these days, what you see coming up next for you. Tell me more. We'll put an, we'll put a link in the, in the show notes because in terms of what, of what Renaissance Re is doing, um, which I'm not here to represent that, but to tell a little story, we just have a recent blog post. Um, number of folks I work with worked with AWS to do a, a blog post about a model build out that we did using their serverless uh, architecture. I played zero role in that other than cheering them on and writing them all nice notes, telling how proud I was of them when they finally got it all working. It was, it was a big project. Um, However, what I do is I consume a bunch of the output of some of these uh, processes. And, you know, I, I've uh, been pretty vocal about some of the things I've been learning lately is uh, you were mentioning the spark. One of the big ahas for me is the uh, Amazon glue. So AWS glue, they, they have a, it's billed as an ETL tool, right? And you got to dig around on, on AWS's website to realize it's Spark. But they don't 
shove that in your face. However, what it allows you to do is you can have hundreds of Spark workers in under 10 seconds. Um, I was really surprised by that because when I had first looked at the tool, it had the normal startup time like Elastic MapReduce of, you know, 10, 10, 15 minutes, whatever, you know, number of minutes. Well, you can get in like 10, in 10 seconds now. And uh, now it varies by your account, how many you're allowed to do. My account will do up to a thousand workers. So I can have 999 uh nodes in my spark cluster each one of them i don't even remember how big they are they're they're i don't know smaller than my macbook pro but not small not lambda small they're they're pretty beefy and i have almost a thousand of those in 10 seconds and pound on data i can slurp in huge amounts of data from s3 stored in parquet files shove it up into those machines and do stuff with it really fast. And now one of the things we learned is they build this whole, they built this software layer on top of Spark called the glue or the glue context. And it allows you to do a bunch of interesting things that are very specific for ETL. We also found you can ignore it and turn it off. And that was a tremendously powerful. Now we've got just a reasonably tuned Spark cluster and we got all of the Amazon glued noise out of the way. And we just have a Spark cluster that we can do Spark cluster things with at scale really fast. And that's super cool. Uh, and the other thing that I found useful is a whole bunch of stuff you don't need a Spark cluster for. If you're just wanting to filter gigs and gigs of Parquet files or maybe do a group buy or something, Amazon Athena, man, is at what it's at. It's, pes it's Presto under the covers in the same way that Glue is Spark. Uh, Athena is Presto under the covers. What's nice about it is it's truly serverless. When I, when I run a query on Athena, I don't tell it anything about how many nodes. I have no idea how many nodes are working. And as far as I can tell, there's no way for me to find out. I, it's very declarative. I just say, Athena, here's a bunch of Parquet files give me every one of them where this column equals this value. And I've done group buys on uh, something like 40, 50 gigs of data. It's like 4 billion records. And I did a group buy that touched every record. Uh, and, you know, 12 seconds later, it's got an answer. And the latency on it has dropped. It used to be like 45 seconds to do any query, no matter how small, and that's down to like three seconds. So it's it's becoming much less latent. Uh, and I've had some interactions with the AWS folks to say that's a real initiative on their side is to make these systems much more responsive so that you don't have these latent lags before anything happens. So as I think about the analytics space, I think any set of tools that lets you operate on large number of Parquet files and allows you to operate in the cloud is a useful set of, of set of tooling to have because that's kind of what we're doing at, at the end of, at the end of the day. Um, the other technology that isn't as useful if your data is in S3 buckets but is super useful if your data is on Drive uh, is DuckDB, which is a um, in-process columnar data store, and it can query um, it can query files directly off of hard drive that are bigger than RAM. So I ran that same. I mentioned a moments ago of that, you know, data I could parse in 12 seconds on Athena and S3. I can get basically the same performance on my MacBook Pro if those files are on my local hard drive. Now, if they're up in S3, I've got way more time copying them local. 
than I do running a query. But on just parquet files, you know, there's no concept of an index or anything. And I'm running an operation that requires every record, right? Because I'm just grouped by and sum. And the runtime in DuckDB is similar and it's bigger than RAM. And I'm running it in R or Python, either one, which are single threaded. DuckDB is not single threaded. So the single threaded process makes a request to DuckDB. DuckDB goes parallel, hits all my processors, saturates my CPUs, and gives me back an answer really fast, right? That's a fantastically useful library for quantitative data folks. So just staying on top of the surface area of these type of tools and remaining conversant and being able to use them is non-trivial. Like I spend a, you know, but between that and meeting with my direct reports and managing my projects, I can't quite figure out where I sleep, but I get it done. What I like about what you're hitting on there is that for those people who have done lots of simulation work before, one of the understandable complaints they have is that it just takes so much in terms of computation resources. Depending on the sorts of simulations you're running, it might be more RAM intensive. It's usually very CPU intensive. It's rarely disk intensive. It's really IO intensive. It's all about crunching a bunch of numbers somewhere. And I think what you've just explained in the past couple of minutes is that there have been enough advances over the past few years uh, in these technologies that there's really no excuse for not diving in. So even for the people who understand what this stuff is, understand probabilistic thinking, and they know how to apply it to their work, it turns out now they have ways to do so. And it seems like a fairly cost-effective approach as well. Yeah, the, a whole bunch of this. So let's let's talk real quick about what makes it cost-effective. What makes it cost-effective is the cloud server. Now, I have given Amazon uh, examples. These tooling exist over in um, Google's environment and also in Azure, um, the tooling to do this. I'm just not as familiar with those, but there are analogies to everything I, I have talked about in AWS. But what makes this cost effective is that we have large amounts of computation needs over short windows of time. So in the past, we would have had to buy a big bunch of fixed assets and pay for them and own them all the time. And in reality, even if I'm running a nightly simulation, I don't need to own those machines all day long. I just need to run them while and own them while I'm, or not even own them. I just need to rent them while I'm doing one specific operation. Um, and then I give them back to Amazon and they stop billing me for it. And that's valuable. Now, if we will probably in a bunch of ways, a whole bunch of cost will be in storage because we're going to keep that stuff up in the cloud. Uh, so Amazon's going to get their pound of flesh that way. And that's okay. Uh, but, you know, it should cause you no surprise. We model this. Now, do we build a full simulation model to understand that cost? No, but we know where we are and we know where we're going. And if we can figure out what does what do our test cost, and we understand the size, we know where we're going and we can estimate estimate that uh, outcome. And you know, one of the, one of the challenges I had with my um, with my software devs at first was. They just get a metric and like everybody else, they want to optimize that metric. So if we're choosing different ways of doing certain things and I'm working with some software devs, they're like, um, this one was twice expensive as that one. I'm like, oh, that sounds like a big deal. How much they cost? Well, this one costs $5 and that one costs $10. And I'm like, okay, 
let me help you understand the baseline here. Anything that costs less than lunch is free. So those differences are are the same to me. So we can just ignore that. And, and they thought that was really weird, right? Because they had a metric and they wanted to optimize it. But I'm like, no, anything that costs less than lunch is free. Now, obviously, if we're doing a million of those runs or we're doing them hundreds of times a day, those numbers do add up. But I knew in the process that we were working on that wasn't the case. So helping folks get calibrated on what's a meaningful cost versus a cost difference that isn't really meaningful is helpful. Once again, a little bit of business acumen helps a lot there. Uh, you asked me about tooling. Did I did I get at what you want? You totally answered the question. And you've also started to dig into something else that came to mind while you were mm -hmm. saying that when you mentioned learning a bit more about the business acumen. You can probably hear my pen scribbling right now as I'm jotting down <laughs> notes while you're talking. You know, you talked about digging into the business model a bit more. And I was thinking about what it would mean to help data scientists find an on-ramp into probabilistic thinking, into simulation. And it's funny because when we started the call, I was thinking we would talk more about just a pure probabilistic mindset. And I realized, well, that is a step, but it sounds like two steps before that, it's about understanding one, that there can be more than one outcome in a lot of situations, right? Mm -hmm. And I realized, you know this intuitively, a number of my friends who also work in the risk space, they know this intuitively, but I think for people who don't work in that space, the idea of thinking in terms of more than one outcome for any event, it's, it's fairly alien and it takes a while to get used to. That's step one. Uh, and step two is just understanding more about your company's business model, because when you combine that with thinking about more than one outcome, you start to think more about, oh, okay, if this is what this company does, here are some of the things that could happen. My model has predicted X, but you know what? My model predicted X and it came back with some confidence score of 0.75. Well, what happens when we hit the 0.25, right? right? That's going to happen at some point. Is the business prepared for us to, for the model to hit that 0.25? Sort of like when people say that, um, I think it was Annie Duke in Thinking and Bets. She talked about people who would claim that she was wrong in a forecast when she said, oh, you know, there's like a 25% chance of you losing this hand they would, and they would lose. And she would say, no, I wasn't wrong. You just found that 25%. So by the way, I can't recommend Annie Duke's book, Thinking in Bets, any more highly. I was literally sitting at a table with an, with an insurance company uh, discussing a reinsurance renewal last week when I was in New York City. And I looked around the table and I said, okay, who's read Annie Duke's Thinking in Bets? And I was shocked that only one person at the table had. Right. And because it is it is the book to read right now for lay people and even non-lay people like you and me to totally. think and discuss um, probabilistic thinking, right? And the thing I was trying to tell them was they made a bunch of decisions and they got lucky that things broke their way the very first year. And what yeah. the point I was trying to make with them was it was the right decision, whether the outcome became obvious in the first year or not, because it was the probabilistically correct, but it was not it was not deterministic. It was not guaranteed to have the right outcome in year one. Now for them, it did. And I said, they should be, you know, proud that they got such an immediate payback, but it would have been the right decision, even if they hadn't gotten immediate validation. She calls that resulting, by the way, when you evaluate a decision based on the result, as opposed to based on, was it probabilistically correct? So it's a little bit like if you only have a 25% odds of something happening and you, you make that decision 
and it goes your way, that isn't necessarily a good decision. And the flip side is if you go, if it does go your way, it's still a bad decision, even if you got lucky and had a good outcome. And that is so hard for people to comprehend that I can get the right outcome, the outcome I wanted, and it still be a bad decision. That strips a lot of gears. <laughs> it definitely does. And for the listeners, we'll leave a link to any Duke's book in the show notes. Neither one of us here is getting paid to promote it. We just, no. like so many books on our shelves, this is just something that we really think people would find useful. And I think that kind of answers my question. I was thinking about other ways to help data scientists develop some of that probabilistic thinking muscle. Speaking of developing the muscle in analyst, one of the things that I, I have observed people don't write blog posts about because you can't sell software around it, and it is this mindset of sometimes we build models to train us as opposed to us building a model to train the model. This is grossly underappreciated in my life totally. experience. And we do this thing. Are, are you familiar with the cartoon Naughty? The little cartoon character. There's a he's probably probably English or or um, Australian. I don't even know his or his country of origin. Not that it matters. But Naughty is a little cartoon character that has a little toy car. The idea is he's a toy. So we build Naughty models, toy models, that are often simplified models of a process for us to build intuition. So <laughs> let me give you an example. Uh Q, if I was to take a log normal distribution, and I know the parameters of the log normal distribution, and let's just say I've shared them with you, and I say, okay, I'm going to take 30 observations. What's the confidence band? If you estimated the shape of that log normal distribution, what confidence band would you put around the 90th percentile? The so the on the long tail. What and, you know, the nobody knows that junk, right? Like no. nobody does that. Most of us, even those of us who deal with, with skewed distributions that have long tails, kind of don't have real good intuition around it. So what do you do? You go over to your Python notebook or you turn on our studio and you go, let's simulate that junk. And you say, let's, let's take a known distribution that's got, I'm going to pick parameters for this log normal distribution. And I'm going to sample randomly 30 points. And then I'm going to use my fitter and I'm going to get an estimate of what the, uh, you know, what, what distribution point did I say? The 70th or 80, anyway, whatever the distribution yeah. point, point is, you get an estimate of it and you do that 10,000 times. And then you've got this distribution of estimates of a point in the tail. And you're about to learn, oh my God, we, we don't have any confidence at all. That spread around that, uh, you know, 80th, 90th, whatever percentile out in the tail I said is huge because 30 points ain't many in a long tail distribution with that much skew. That's very little information. And then you look over at your company and you go, we're building forecast off of 20 points of data and it's got skew. Huh, whoa, that's uncomfortable. Well, what we just did there is we trained an analyst using a model, right? Not used an analyst to train a model, we trained an analyst using a model. That exercise is so important. And I send analysts to go build a toy Jupyter notebook, right? Or build a toy model in R, build a toy model in Excel, 
regularly, right? Like if, if their intuition is kind of broken and they aren't really sure, like, well, go, go work it out, build yourself an example. And it's a hugely valuable thing for building statistical acumen in analyst, right? And, and, and I build them for myself regularly. Like I'll, I'll be like, I think it works like this. Let's build an example. I learned stochastic modeling because I couldn't grok uh, undergraduate probability theory. I always build mental models in my head. Like in, you know, physics, I would picture the thing that was going on. And I had trouble with some of the stuff in uh, probability theory. So I started building little toys in Excel, using the random number generator in Excel to do things like do dice games, simulate outcomes of, you know, binary random choice, that sort of stuff. Little did I know I was basically invent, quote unquote, inventing, right? Reinventing stochastic modeling, right? I, I was building a Monte Carlo simulation. I just didn't know it. A very simple toy ones to teach myself probability. So I'd be like, oh, I see how when I do this, I get this outcome, or these are the way things are related. Um, you know, and I, and I remember being hung for a long time on how do I introduce correlation between two random variables, right? Like that's a little bit tricky in Excel. Um, but once again, that was me using the model to train me. So my origin story is all about building models to get my head around something and to build my intuition so that I can then ask better questions or I can, I can look at something and say, you're using highly skewed distributions that you fit using 20 points. You got no confidence in those answers, right? Or usually what it is, is ask them what their confidence is in the answer. And they tell me, and I go, no, you're really off. Uh, your confidence band should be way bigger than that. I don't know what the answer is, but it should be a lot bigger than plus or minus 10%, right? We're talking plus or minus, you know, an order of magnitude, not 10%. You know, it's you're way, you have huge confidence bands down there. So um, that's a super useful skill in order to build the intuition for thinking probabilistically is building these toy model games to play in code or, you know, in Excel, which Excel is code. That's a different controversial take. Yeah, I think you and I can talk about this particular angle for several hours. I won't, I won't put the listeners through that, but what you're saying right there, it touches on something I've been working on lately, which is this, this understanding of what is the role of the data scientist or the machine learning engineer. And to your point, um, a lot of people don't realize that the role of the job isn't necessarily to build the models, it's to develop an understanding of the business's data. And sometimes building a model helps you understand the data. For example, one way that can help is if you build a model and it just won't work very well, if the performance is terrible. That tells you a lot about the data you fed into the model, right? Because the model has no feelings, it has no opinions. It just says, I am trying my best to juggle and warp and you know, shuffle around these numbers, looking for some clear boundaries between these classes, whatever, I can't find it. That tells you a ton about your data, right? But I think that the people who feel that their job is to build the model and they rate the performance based on how the model performs, they're going to miss all that. But it's, it dovetails right with what you're saying about this notion of building toy models to help your intuition, building machine learning models to understand more about your data, you know, using the models not in the way that we think, but in ways that are insanely useful. It goes a long way. 
let me tell a little little side anecdote related to that. Um, one of the guys I work with leads up our, our BI team. He's one of my peers. And he always has this uh, kind of adage about uh, we're not building dashboards. We're building a place to discover insights. And it sounds a little corny, right? But it's really a different worldview. And it's important that I'm not just cranking out reports. Or I'm not just cranking out that this dashboard is of no value in its existence, unless someone can use it to have an insight. And so he's keeping the end in mind, not to sound too Stephen Covey here in my seven steps of highly effective data scientist, but he's keeping it in perspective of why are we doing the exercise, right? It's not because dashboards are great. They're awful in a bunch of ways. But if they can give us some insights, it's a reasonable mechanism uh, to, do, to do that. And I think that's important to keep the, keep the end in mind. As we start to wind down here, we can let's quickly recap some of the things you were talking about. So you mentioned as far as helping data scientists develop that, that probabilistic thinking muscle. We talked about you know, understanding that most situations can have multiple outcomes. You know, getting your brain to think about that, understanding more about the business model, learning to develop toy models or other systems to help you build an intuition around something. Based on your experience, helping people bridge that gap into probabilistic thinking, are there any other quick thoughts you have to help that along? I, I think one of the points we made early on in this conversation, I just want to pull out and, re and reiterate and that is carry your modeling all the way through a financial model if you're in an organization where that makes sense. Now, in some organizations, a financial model may not be the right metric. Maybe you're measuring something else. So I, I have um, a number of friends in the military. And one of my buddies in the military said to me, our big thing we're trying to optimize is readiness. And he said, that's a very different thing than you people who are optimizing profit above all else. He said, we don't, our thing is readiness. So how do we measure it? Right. So we talked a little bit about what are some of the metrics they might create. And so I think they would need to run a lot of the things they're thinking about optimizing through a, all the way through a, and I'm going to use this in quotes because it's not a literal thing, but a quote unquote readiness model, but they need to carry it all the way to some metric that's meaningful to them in the thing they're trying to optimize. And this is a huge amount of, you know, that that's really the underlying principle of why business folks get frustrated with, um, machine learning or data science, science experiments that fail to, to yield value is they often don't carry it all the way through, don't carry the project, the metric all the way through to what everybody else cares about. Frequently in business, that's uh, profit or a financial outcome, but it may be something else. If you work in a nonprofit, if one works in a nonprofit, it might be something else. It might be some measurement of impact, but you've got to carry that thing you're working on all the way through what matters the most to you uh, in order to really glean value. And if you stop on an intermediate step, then you're going to kind of have an intermediate impact, I think. Two last questions for you, I promise. Yep. One, we've already covered Annie Duke's Thinking and Bets, which both of us agree. It's a fantastic book on probabilistic thinking. Um, what other books would you recommend for people who are interested in this? And this can be everything from more of the 
layman slash pop culture-ish meaning of book all the way to the, you know, deep technical side of things, what would you recommend? All right. So I'm going to go total pop stuff here. Um, hugely it. divisive character in kind of the pop psychology around risk is Nesim Nicholas Taleb's yes. known as NNT because I can't pronounce his name, uh, series of books. And many people argue he basically wrote the same book over and over, but he added different aspects uh, each time he, he sort of changed things. And going back to his early ones, fooled, fooled by randomness yeah. um, and Black Swan, pick one, read it. It's really worth uh, understanding what, what he's talking about. Now, my joke about NNT is that he is a uh, honeypot for ad hominem fallacy, right? So ad hominem, hominem fallacy is your argument is invalid because you're a jerk. And NNT is kind of a honeypot for that, right? If you are going dis to dismiss somebody because you find them uh, personally abrasive, uh, then you, it's easy to dismiss him. And I got the feeling that's that's part of his shtick by design is he wants to weed out people who think like that. So uh, for folks that are interested in uh, finance, probabilistic thinking, that sort of thing, uh, Poundstone's uh, book, Fortune's Formula, about the creation of the Kelly criteria. What's so great about it is it's a well-written book that tells the story of people and the story of a mathematical formula kind of all at the same time. And uh, it, it, it helps you realize that it's not only Michael Lewis that can do that. Other people have that skill as well. Poundstone proves it in Fortune's Formula. And, and I think it's super. I, of course, love Michael Lewis's books. Uh, but the book on statistics, unrelated to finance, unrelated to risk, and it's, it's one that I literally give a copy to analysts when they, when they start working for me, um, is called The Lady Tasting Tea. And the book, The Lady Tasting Tea, is the story of where did all these statistics come from? It's not the, the, the story. It's not the formula. It's who was student of student's tea test and what was going on in his life at the Guinness Beer Factory in Dublin that caused him to publish those papers and do it under a, a pseudonym. It's the story of any number of people. And, and it gets its name from the, the Victorian challenge of can the lady tell if she had tea in her cup and the cream was added to it, or was the cream in the cup and the tea added to it? And uh, which of those, how many times does she have to get that right to prove that she has some ability to tell which was in the cup first? You know, is it, is it, is three out of five? Is it four out of five? Is it five out of five she has to do in order to have, uh, to be able to claim that she has predictive power? These are some of the, the stories from the origins of statistical thought and bringing statistics into science. And I love it because it's all these stories. And I feel like we were all shortchanged in school because we didn't get the stories. We just got the formulas. And we all know the human brain works off of stories. We got hundreds of thousands of years of evolution of telling stories around campfires. And we sometimes stop telling the stories. And one of the things I love about podcasts and why I jump at the opportunity to be on your podcast queue is we get to tell some stories, right? And these are going to stick in people's heads better than any set of formulas and equations in books. And Lady Tasting Tea, that's my third book, right? 
Final question for you, my friends. I do want to be mindful of your time here. Um, so again, I'm going to be biased as I ask this. I personally find risk to be an absolutely fascinating subject. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing, hopefully at the end of this conversation, listening to you, some of our listeners feel the same way. Um, what would you recommend for people who currently work in some flavor of data science or machine learning or what have you? If they were interested in getting into the field of risk, whether it's through insurance, reinsurance, or anything else, what steps would you recommend they take? So, you know, in earlier in our conversation, when I when I talked about this progression from through the moments of distributions and thinking through, um, you know, right now I have a model that just produces a mean estimate, or I'm an accountant and I produce a single value. Well, that's a, that's a mean, right? Um, think about well, what's, what might the second moment be? What might the standard deviation around that estimate, right? This is the, the entree into probabilistic thinking. And then say, how can I use that in, in my data science right where I am? Now, in terms of really putting that to use in very powerful and meaningful ways, uh, you really have to be part of an ecosystem that thinks that way. If you're in you know, an accounting uh, job and you start giving um, you know distributional estimates for your values, that's probably not going to be smiled upon, right? Like that that's not how the back office works. We we values are values. We take care of the pennies and the dollars take care of themselves. But if you move into, for example, if you're in in accounting and you move towards financial planning and analysis, right? That's kind of a different story because there you're beginning to think about ranges of outcomes, the most likely outcome versus which things have a broad range and how that might impact my plans, right? That's moving into, into probabilistic thinking, but similarly, maybe staying in, in the same field. Um, but any movement towards an organization or towards a different party organization where probabilistic thinking is the norm or is smiled upon or is rewarded. Uh, would all would all be beneficial, right? So it depends on how big a move you want to make. Do you want to just move to a different team, or are you looking to move to a different different organization? Now, inside uh, many insurance companies, a whole bunch of uh, the probabilistic thinking space uh, is sort of sewn up by actuaries, and they have a, a significant hurdle to be a part of their tribe uh, through the actuarial professional testing um, uh, hurdles. There's an awful lot of, of risk jobs, risk system jobs, so maybe a little more IT heavy, uh, actuarial support jobs that are, you know, partnering with those teams that aren't actuarial jobs, right? So you don't have to go through the, the, the full actuarial certification, but you can still have a meaningful impact, especially on the risk side, right? That's, that's where I am. And we partner with the actuaries who are working on things like deal pricing, reserving, um, you know, the, the managing a bunch of the actuarial plumbing and signing off on actuarial results. Those are, those are great. And we partner with them and a whole bunch of things and bring them into different projects where they're clearly the subject matter experts. Uh, but we're running around here doing interesting things in the, in the risk space that doesn't have the uh, actuarial certification as, as a barrier to entry, right? There's, there's a number of, uh, of companies in our space who need smart people who want to solve these classes of problems, especially if they have a bend towards systems, right? Dealing with uh, AWS, dealing with cloud computing, you know, Python and R and, you know, 
more and more things in Rust, um, you know, using these tools to run simulations, to do things at scale, that's not the specialty of, you know, actuarial teams. So um, firms are generally financial services. So trading shops, things peripheral to that, uh, commodity shops, insurance companies, reinsurance companies, that space. You know, one, one of the magic phrases, if you wanted to go search is, you know, ERM and then put your programming language of choice into the search engine or risk in your programming language uh, of choice. By the way, we have a number of jobs open at uh, where I work at Renaissance Re. And uh, I made a I made a bit.ly link. We'll put it in the show notes, but it's it's bit.ly slash jobs. And that just goes to our job board. We're uh, most of our openings right now for folks that line up with this pod- podcast. We're most heavily hiring in Dublin right now. We have a uh, operation in Dublin. So if if you're in Ireland, that might be an interest. We got a couple of positions in the U.S. Um, and uh, th- those would be, um, you know, re- options. Reach out to me. Say hi. Um, I'm happy to to talk to folks. Cool. We'll be sure to leave a link to your Twitter handle and anything else in the show notes. Uh, once again, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. This has been really good. i I had a great time. I suspect our listeners will have a great time as well. Well, it was fantastic. It's very much like going out to lunch or going to drinks with you, only I've been watching my language a little tighter on this one. So, <laughs> two of us. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Have a good All night. right. Cheers. Talk to you later. Cheers. Bye. Yeah.